Bibles again and let's open to our text this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 15. And any children here, uh, ages kindergarten or first grade, may be dismissed to Children's Church if they like, which you can find in the back foyer. If you're new here and you have a kid in kindergarten or first grade, there's sort of a child-appropriate activity and, and lesson during this, the sermon time. Kids are welcome to go to. Deuteronomy chapter 15, it's on page 187 in the Pew Bible, and today we're looking at uh, verses 19 to 23 as we slowly but surely plod our way through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15. You know, there's some texts you read and you kind of wonder, what am I supposed to do with this? Here's one of those texts, Deuteronomy 15, 19 to 23. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn male of your herds and flocks. Do not put the firstborn of your oxen to work and do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You are to eat it in your own towns, both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it as if it were gazelle or deer. But you must not eat the blood, pour it on the ground like water. So uh, if you're just joining us this Sunday, first time here at our church, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. As I said, we're studying through the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is essentially a sermon or actually probably a series of sermons written down that Moses delivered to the Israelites as they were about to enter the promised land. And and sort of the whole, if you want to to summarize Deuteronomy in in sort of one idea, it's really uh, God and Moses teaching the Israelites what it means to live as his people in the promised land. So it's this kind of comprehensive law-giving where Moses is saying, you're going to be God's people, so this is how you need to function. And, And that law covers everything. And one of the things we noticed in the last couple of Sundays here as we've been pushing our way through chapters 14 and 15 is that one of the things it means to be God's people is that God owns everything. It's all his. When, when you're his uh, and he is yours, then you're his. Everything is his. Our whole life is his. That's what it means to be his people. And that includes even the things that we possess that we tend to think are ours are actually his. And so one of the things that we see Uh, here in 14 and 15, are just laws that God gave Israel to remind them that they need to honor God as the owner of all things, as their king. So, you know, two Sundays ago, chapter 14, we looked at laws on tithing and how uh, the Israelites were to honor God by giving him 10% of their uh, of what they grew or their income. And and even the 90% that they kept is a reminder that it's all his, that he gives it to them. And then last Sunday, we looked at laws concerning debts and canceling debts and indentured servants and letting indentured servants free. And this reminder that that God governs all of that and how we relate to each other, even in financial arrangements within Israel, there were laws. Well, this Sunday we come to another law, and it's the law of the firstborn, where basically the Israelites were supposed to give the firstborn male offspring of the herds and flocks to the Lord. And it's, again, one of these texts where you kind of wonder, now, what, what do we do exactly with this today? Um, I'm guessing most of us here don't have sheep. You know, I know Mike Levitt has a few, but uh, 
you know, we don't have sheep, we don't have cows. Uh, I assume most of us here are not donkey owners. So, you know, what, what do you do with these laws about livestock and firstborn and things like that? So what I want to do this morning is I want to basically do three things with this text, kind of three simple steps to the sermon, you know, just if you want to kind of follow the outline. One is I want to look at what the law is. Let's just understand what it is God was telling the Israelites to do. It's always helpful just to get it. And then number two, why he gave them this law. You see, there's an interesting backstory to this law. That's, it's rather fascinating once you kind of delve down into it and understand why this law came about in the first place. And then third, ask that question, so what do we do with this in the modern world where we have flat screen TVs, iPads, uh, Priuses, but no sheep? You know, How do we implement this today in the modern world? What does it mean for us as Christians, especially living under the New Covenant? So first of all, what was the law? And basically, the law can be summarized right there in verse 19. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn male of your herds and flocks. So uh, the Israelites were to take every firstborn animal, and it was to be set apart to the Lord. In other words, um, consecrated to the Lord, your Bible translation might say. Uh, It's actually the Hebrew word for holy, except turned into a verb. So it's treat as holy, set apart as holy to the Lord, the holy God, and this is given to him. This is a holy thing that's now set aside for God, and, and it's supposed to be given to him. So if you have a sheep and it has its very first lamb, and it's a male lamb. Or if you have a goat, and it has its very first male kid. Or a cow, and it's very first male calf. Or an ox, and what do oxen have? Calves? I, mean, I don't know. Whatever. But, you know, I don't, what do donkeys have? I don't know. But the first one that's a male, like that goes to the Lord, right? And you can't use it. Do not put the firstborn of your oxen to work. Do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. You can't sell it. You can't use it for any economic gain because it's now belong to the Lord and your first go to him. Instead, what you're supposed to do, verse 20, is sacrifice it to God. Each year, you and your family, verse 20, are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. So during one of the three annual pilgrim feasts, Israel was to take these animals and bring them to the temple or tabernacle and sacrifice them and give them to the Lord as part of a way of worshiping him and there to eat that sacrifice there. So it's interesting, you know, what an interesting thing for God to ask us to give him the first. You know, firsts, the first thing is always a precious thing. You know, you remember your first, you remember your first puppy as a kid. You know, you can remember that. You know, you can't remember everything, but you remember that first animal. Do you remember your first kiss? Do you remember your first car? You know, mine was a blue Volkswagen Bug, stick shift. I got on my birthday. My da- I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. My dad's like, all right, just remember, clutch and gas opposites, go. And I just <laughs> went around town that night, you know. <laughs> Stalled it out 50 times, but now I can drive a stick great. I'll never forget that blue Volkswagen bug. Um, do you remember your first job, your first paycheck? You know, do you remember your first house you ever bought, your first apartment you moved into? Maybe if, if you know, if you have kids, that first child is such a vivid memory. You know, firsts are precious things. So for God to say, I want the first of your offspring, of your, your sheep and your goats and your cows, give those to me, the first male. 
you know, try to imagine what that would have meant to them back then. It, it's always kind of tough, but we should do this when we're reading Old Testament things to not just view it from our modern perspective, but to try to imagine what would it mean to give your first if you lived in an agrarian, you know, shepherding kind of culture where you're subsisting on your animals and, and this was part of your livelihood. You know, in that kind of a culture, every animal counted. Every animal mattered because that was how you stayed alive is you had your livestock. And so you have this cow, right? And uh, you, it, it was a calf, and now it's grown up into a cow. It's now old enough to breed. This cow didn't get killed by a lion. It didn't get killed by raiders. It didn't get diseased and died. It's like somehow this cow in that ancient world made it to maturity. And the cow is now pregnant, and the cow has a calf and is gestating. And we all know how long that takes. Yeah, neither did I. So I looked it up. It's... Uh, Ten months. So you've got to wait ten months for the calf to be born. And typically, I, I read, uh, cows just have one calf. It's very rare for a cow to have uh, twins. So the cow has one calf. And now that calf comes out, and it's birthed there, and it's a male, and now you have to sacrifice it to God. Like, oh, seriously? You know, I've been waiting so long for this little calf to grow up to start producing things so that I can feed my family. But that, that calf is born, and you have to now give that to the Lord and wait another ten months or whatever it takes to have another calf and hope that it works and hope that everything's healthy. You know, what a sacrifice that would have been to give the first of something to the Lord. So this was a, a precious sacrifice, and it was a way of them honoring God and saying God is our God. He is our King. It's all from Him, and we honor Him even with this. What a step of faith to give that calf back to the Lord. So this would have been a, a weighty act of sacrifice. Give it back to the Lord. Unless, verse 21, here's a little caveat, if an animal has a defect, is lame or blind or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You're to eat it in your own town. So you can still eat it at home, but you can't give it to God. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it as if it were gazelle or deer, but you must not eat the blood poured out on the ground like water. So if that first lamb or something comes out, that first male kid of the, of the animal, and you look at it and it's kind of defective in some way, it has some deformity or it was born with some defect, you can't say, well, we'll just give that to God anyway. I mean, I wasn't going to be able to use it so perfect. I'll just give it to the Lord. No, no, no. God's not taking that one. He wants an unblemished sacrifice. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be blemish-free, defect-free, deformity-free in terms of the physical characteristics of the animal. So there's this picture here. So that's the law, right? If a firstborn animal that's male without flaws is born, you must give that to the Lord and sacrifice it to him. Now, why is this law in place? Is it, is it just a law to teach Israel to offer to God? I mean, I think that's part of the reason for the law is to teach Israel to honor the Lord and to acknowledge him as the one who gives all things. But, but there's actually, as I said, an interesting kind of backstory behind this law. There's more to it than that. This law for the firstborn <clears throat> is, is really a kind of reminder or memorial or kind of mnemonic device. It, it's like your you know, iPhone that goes off with a little alarm, beep, 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 you know, to remind you of something, that they were to be reminded of how God had rescued them from Egypt. 
And so every time they sacrificed a firstborn male without blemish, it was to be a, a reminder, a kind of signpost, a symbol that was to point them back to the fact that God had rescued them as his people, that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Let me show you the, the kind of backstory. Let's go back now to that story in the, of when God rescued the Israelites and see how it connects with this whole idea of the sacrifice of the firstborn. So go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 4. It's on page 58 in the Pew Bibles. Um, Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. So you all know the story, right? The, uh, the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. They were under the rule of Pharaoh. The Israelites cried out for help. And so God raised up a deliverer to save the Israelites. His name was Moses. And God told Moses, go to Egypt, deliver the Israelites. So here in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, we see God commanding Moses to go back. It says, the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, when you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So Moses went back to Egypt. He said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. So God used Moses to perform plagues and signs and wonders. Now, I see a few kids here. I know some of you kids have studied this in Sunday school. Any of you kids here, you just raise your hand. Can you tell me what some of the plagues were? that Moses sent upon the Israelites. Anyone remember? Anyone? Yeah, way in the back. Frogs. Yes, one of my favorites, the plague of frogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One way in the back over there. Locusts, boils. Yeah, that's lovely, right? Yeah, nothing like a plague of boils to uh, to just help soften up a, a, a people. He sent uh, one more, yeah. Darkness. That's right. Ten plagues. Darkness, boils, locusts, frogs, hail, all kinds of things. And then the final plague was what? God said, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. So again and again, a plague comes and God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will not let the people go. Until finally, that tenth plague where God is going to kill the firstborn of Egypt. And notice here in Deuteronomy 4.22, before Moses ever goes to Egypt, God predicts and promises that this is what it will come to. Verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Get this. Israel is my firstborn son. Interesting. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Isn't that interesting? Now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter, sorry, Exodus chapter 12. That is, in fact, what happened. On that 12th plague, God sent the angel of death throughout Egypt and he killed all the firstborns of, of the Egyptians, both man and animal. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. On the same night I will pass through Egypt. And I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So all the firstborn in Egypt died, except for who? Except for the Israelites. Why? Well, God marked them with the, the blood of the Passover lamb. So that night, when all of the Egyptians were about to lose a firstborn, God told the Israelites to sacrifice a male 
lamb and take the blood of the Passover lamb and paint it over the, you know, the door frame of the house. And that that night when the, that plague came, anyone who was inside a, a kind of protected house, protected by the blood of the lamb, would be safe. But anyone who was outside would be subject to the plague. And so that's what happened. If you look down at verse 29 of chapter 12, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh. So the prince of Egypt died, who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead terrifying, terrible judgment came upon the Egyptians because they refused to worship and honor the true God. Their hearts were hard. So, God wanted to remind them of this. And, and we all know that God instituted the Passover feast. Uh, you know, some of us have Jewish friends. Maybe you're raised in a Jewish family. You know that in, uh, in Judaism, the Passover is one of the most sacred of all the Jewish holy days. It's a celebration to remind the Israelites of what God did back then to save them. But there was another thing, and, and here's now where we get back to our Deuteronomy text, there's another thing that God put into place to remind the Israelites of the way he rescued them. What was it? The law about sacrificing the firstborn. So look at chapter 13 now of Exodus. Now let's kind of connect these two things that we've been talking about. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether men or animals. Ah, there we go. And now he gets explained. Now jump down to verse 11. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every Womb, all the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. There's Deuteronomy. But he goes further. Redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you don't redeem it, break its neck. I mean, you can't sacrifice a donkey, so it, it has to die, though. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So if you have a firstborn son, you don't sacrifice it. You, you give something else to pay for it and sort of buy it out. Redeem it was the idea. Why? So now we get back to our original question. Why, then? Well, verse 14, in days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? In other words, why are we doing this? Why are we sacrificing the firstborn? When he says, why, what does it mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord uh, brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord every first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. It will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Ah, do you see it now how it all comes together? So here's the scenario. Here's an Israelite father and the first she, the sheep is having its first lamb and the lamb is a firstborn male and there's his little daughter standing there next to him and she's really excited because she's taking a particular liking to the sheep, you know. She sort of, you know, kids kind of love an animal. and She loves that sheep, you know. And she came up with a really, one of those really intriguing kid names like Sheepy or Wooly, you know. And, and Wooly has its first lamb and the little girl feels like a grandmother. It's like, oh, you 
the sheepie's first baby. And the lamb comes out, and it's a male. And she's like, when are we going to name him, Dad? (laughs) We're not. We're going to sacrifice it to the Lord. Uh, You know? Why would you sacrifice sheepy's baby? You know? Let me tell you. Let me tell you a story. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. Yeah, I know, I know. But do you remember how he did it? And so he starts to tell the story about how the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt and how the Lord brought his firstborn, Israel, out of Egypt and how we, we therefore sacrifice the firstborn to honor the Lord and remember what he's done for us so that kind of baked in and wired in and cooked in to Israel's society at all levels, economic, religious, interpersonal, the memory and the honor of what God had done for them in Egypt is just kind of hardwired into Israel's whole culture. So that wherever an Israelite goes, whether he's dealing with loans or whether he's tithing or whether he's dealing with sheep being born, I mean something as earthy and as gritty as birthing animals, is reminding him that God is the King and God is the Savior. So that they they can't get away from this truth. It's built into their culture as God gives them these laws. God is your King. God is your Redeemer. He's the one who brought you out of Egypt. Even a little lamb being born reminds them of this. It's amazing what God has done. And I think that helps us with the third question, which is what does it mean today? I think that gives us now a little direction. So what is it? Question number one, it's, it's a law saying that your firstborn unblemished male must be sacrificed to the Lord. Why? Because it was a reminder or a memorial. It was a mnemonic device, in a sense, that caused the Israelites to reflect on God's great salvation for them. So what does it mean for us today? Well, this isn't the only time in the Bible that God brought about an amazing salvation that involved a firstborn male. This story in Exodus is not the only time God did an amazing salvation of needy sinners involving a firstborn male. Because we look into the New Testament and we discover that the whole story of the Exodus, the whole story of the Israelites, the Passover, was all a kind of foreshadowing and a prefiguring and a predicting of a greater salvation that would be brought about through Jesus Christ, that the firstborn Son of God. Now think about Jesus. He is God the Son. Think about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son, the one and only Son, the only begotten Son, you might say the firstborn Son of God, because there is no other, is, is God the Son. It says in uh, Colossians 1.15 about Jesus that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So, so in all creation you have Jesus and He's the firstborn Son. He's the Lord over all of that because He's God. And then this God who created all things along with the Father became a human being named Jesus of Nazareth. So when you see Jesus of Nazareth on earth, you are seeing God in human form. He's the image, the visible manifestation of the the invisible God. And think about Jesus. Who was he born to? Mary. And it was her firstborn son. You know? And just to make sure, he was born to a virgin. (laughs) 
So you'd know this was her first kid, definitely. And it was miraculous, and it's the firstborn son. And Jesus went to the cross, and he died on the cross for us. Just like that Passover lamb's blood was shed, so that Israelites who hid under the the, the blood of the Passover lamb were protected from the judgment of God, so also the blood of Christ was shed on the cross so that anyone who hides in Christ, anyone who puts their faith in Christ, is protected from God. Our, Our sins are forgiven. The judgment day is still coming. It'll be much more terrible than any of these plagues. But we're protected in Christ. He's forgiven us and and washed us. When did Jesus die? What festival was going on in Israel when He died? The Passover. It was not a coincidence. Jesus intentionally went to die on the Passover because He is the true Passover Lamb, delivering us from a greater slavery. Not physical slavery, but the slavery of our sins and the coming judgment of God. And then He didn't stay dead. He rose three days later. Just as the Israelites went through the Passover into the Red Sea and came out the other side. So Christ has risen. He's conquered. And what does Revelation call Him? Revelation 1.5 calls Jesus the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so look at Jesus. He is... You know, He's the the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn Son of Mary. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His name is Jesus, it says in Matthew, because He will save His people from their sins. And He rises again as the firstborn from among the dead. God gave the precious firstborn Son to save sinners like us. Or to think of it this way, think about this. In the Passover, God killed the firstborn sons of his enemies so that his beloved firstborn son Israel might go free. But on the cross, God killed his beloved son Jesus so that his enemies might become his beloved sons and daughters. At the Exodus, God killed the firstborn sons of his enemies so that his beloved son Israel might grow free. But on the cross, God killed his beloved son, Jesus, so that his enemies might be forgiven and become his sons and daughters. The magnitude of God's love for us, it's incredible. Some of us came in the room today. We came to church today. We're going through difficult circumstances in our lives. We have setbacks. We have frustrations. We have illnesses. Things are not going well at work. We're we're discouraged. And sometimes in our, our less faithful moments, we just wonder, what is God doing? Why is God treating me this way? I thought God loved me. And we get looking at our circumstances as a kind of barometer of God's love for us. And, and of course, it's going to go up and down. But when you look to Christ, when you realize that He gave the firstborn precious Son of God to die for me, you know, I I suddenly have an assurance of God's love that is so much more unshakable. I need to be like those Israelites. I need memorials in my life. You know, that's what baptism is. It's a reminder. Remember what Christ did? That's why we have the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Like the firstborn child thing, the sacrifice thing. We need to be reminded of how much God loves us. That's why we come to church every Sunday. Why do we come to church on Sunday? It's the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week. 
right? And we gather because we all need to be reminded from his word, me most of all, of how much he loves me and what he did for me on the cross. But wait, there's more. One last idea. Not only did He give us His beloved firstborn Son, but God gave us His beloved unblemished, unblemished firstborn Son. Jesus Christ was pure. He was holy. There was no blemish. And that means so much to us because we are so covered in blemishes. We are so imperfect. We are so deformed and malformed uh, spiritually, even physically, you know? It's like, even physically, I, I don't look the way I, I think I should look. Yeah, I don't know. Everyone has a kind of mental image of what they look like. You know, you close your eyes and you think, what do I look like? Like, visualize yourself. My mental image of how I look is so much better looking than real life. <laughs> you know, I close my eyes and I, it looks good. And then I open my eyes and I'm like, Wow. Uh, you know, you, you come to the, you know, you come to the mirror in the morning and you flick on the light and you, wow, wow, oh, what happened? And even as I'm getting older, you know, I turned 40 this year, and just weird things are happening. You know, like I'm getting white hairs in my beard, like the skin above my eyes, it's like going down. I, I have like two eyelids now. It's, or you, you catch yourself in the mirror the wrong way and you're like, ooh. Mm. It's just, and I, I, I think it's going to get worse. I don't know. <laughs> and so what do we do in the morning? We just work it in the mirror. We're putting on the stuff. We're doing the hair. We're like, I've got to counteract these blemishes. I, I, don't, I can't really look like this. It can't really be me. So we, we do stuff to make ourselves look better. We go to the closet and, you know, we're trying on this that covers that and, you know, this is a slimmer and that's a, you know, this emphasizes that and we're trying all these clothes because it's like, ah, oh, this, this is bad. I've got to somehow cover all this. And that's just our physical blemishes. What about our spiritual and moral blemishes? That's even worse. Again, I have a mental picture of what I'm like spiritually and morally. And when I think of myself that way, I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm great. I'm nice. I, I'm a super Christian, you know. And then I look at myself in the mirror. I stare in the mirror of God's Word. And I say, oh dear, I've got so many blemishes. You know, I, I look at the characters in the Bible, the heroes of the Bible, who are all just such disasters. One of the things I find so interesting about the Bible is that the heroes of the Bible are such flawed, you know, unattractive people in some ways, which for me actually makes the Bible more compelling as a book to believe, because if this was just a religious propaganda book, it sure didn't do a good job. You know, usually in a religious propaganda book, all, all the people who are on the side of God should look really great and smart or whatever. And all the heroes in this book are just such disasters. And unfortunately, I see myself in them. When I see Moses being called to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh, and Moses tries to weasel out of it any way he can, and finally he says, could you just send someone else to do it? Like, I see my own cowardice to obey God in Moses. 
And when I look at Elijah, the great prophet who you know could pray up a storm, literally. Um, and then I see after a great victory, the next day he's running away into the desert and he's hiding under a bush crying, you know, saying to God, woe is me, I'm the only prophet left, they're trying to kill me, why don't I just die? You know, and he's just whining and having this, this self-absorbed pity party. And I'm like, that's so me. One week I can be like, God is great and I can talk conquer the world and the next week I've forgotten the whole gospel and I've forgotten his power and I'm suddenly whining again as if God isn't real as if Christ didn't save me and I look at David the man after God's own heart who has that just you know terrible disastrous affair with Bathsheba and then he covers it up and tries to hide it and you know we need to look at that and say we've done things like that some of us have committed adultery you know we're all capable of it it lurks in our souls, betrayal and infidelity and covetousness. Or I look at Jonah. Jonah who was told to go preach to the Ninevites and he went the other direction. You know, and he's, Jonah's known as the guy who got swallowed by the whale. That's always in the kids' books. Do you remember the why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because he hated Ninevites. He wanted them all to die. He didn't want to give them one ch- more chance to repent. He was... He was angry, he was nationalistic, he was jingoistic, he was xenophobic. And I'm like, whew, I can be like that. Or or I go to the New Testament and, oh dear, there in the mirror is the Pharisees. Oh, the Pharisees, they get me every time. Self-righteous, smug, theological know-it-alls who have religion and theology so nailed down and everyone else is wrong and that... There's just no compassion in them. There's no love in them. And I see the Pharisees and I go, oh dear, that's me. And if the Pharisees don't get you, read about those 12 disciples. I mean, you know, what a band of losers. These guys, they're just spiritually dumb. They don't get it. They betray him. They, they, don't, they don't understand. They're always doubting. And I read about the disciples. And you go, you know, I could have easily been one of the 12 disciples. I probably would have qualified for those 12 those 12 clowns, I would have fit right in. You know, there's one person, though, I read about in the Bible that, that I can't say I'm just like that. is Jesus. You know, Jesus went through the same life that I've gone through, the same temptations, the same muck and mire, but He didn't falter like I do. When He was tempted, He resisted. When He had to speak a hard truth, He didn't chicken out. He said it. He loved the people that I would pass by and ignore. He obeyed all the way to the cross. He always did the will of the Father. And I look at Jesus and I say, unblemished. The one unblemished human that has ever trodden planet earth is Jesus Christ. He's the one I've been looking for. I keep hoping that the unblemished guy will become president or senator or governor and so I vote and Sometimes the wrong guy gets in, sometimes the right guy does, and then the right guy becomes the wrong guy. And I'm like, you know, I realize it's blemished. But Jesus Christ was holy and perfect, full of grace and truth. He was everything that we are supposed to be. And He died on the cross for our sins. The unblemished was sacrificed for the blemished. Look at one last verse, then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 13, it's on page 1189, Hebrews 9.13, page 1189. 
the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.13, he says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctifies them so they are outwardly clean. So even the sacrifices of the Old Testament really couldn't forgive you. They were just kind of ceremonial symbols. Verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished, the unblemished sacrifice of Jesus, He can actually not just cleanse us ceremonially, but cleanse our consciences. He can cleanse that inner part of us that no ritual can touch. His blood can cleanse our souls from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. There is nobody here with a record so messed up in a life so foul that the blood of Christ cannot clean you if you'll put your faith in Him. If you'll just come to Christ and say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. There's no one who's too far from God's grace if you'll put your faith in the Lord. And not only to be cleaned, but then I love that last little sentence, last little phrase rather, so that we may serve the living God. You can serve God. You're like, not me. I'm way too damaged. Way too damaged goods to ever serve God. I can't even believe I can get saved, let alone serve. No, you can serve Him. No matter what your past is, people can meet you. I love that story about, you know, Alex told about that guy he knew, and then he became a Christian, and four years later he was a different guy. That's what happens. People meet Jesus and they become a different pe- person and people can't recognize them because it's like, who are you? It's like, Christ saved me. I'm born again. Oh, born again. <laughs> well, it's what it is. I mean, it is what it is. You're a new person in Christ. And you can serve God. God can use you to serve Him. So I, as I was praying about this passage this week, I was you know, studying it, preparing to write this sermon what am I going to do with sacrifices of animals? You know, what do you do with that? But as I came to understand this passage, my prayer for you this week, my prayer for this church this week has been, Lord, cause this church to see how precious Jesus is. May this church just grow in its adoration and love and esteem of Jesus Christ. And then... Lord, cause this church to be overwhelmed with the fact that You, Father, treasured them so much that You would give the precious Christ to save them and make them Your own. Oh Lord, may this church be overwhelmed by these truths. Let's pray. And so Lord, I offer this prayer to You again. May South Shore Baptist Church not be known for its awesome new building. May South Shore Baptist Church not be known for its music or preaching or youth program or anything like that. Lord, I pray that this church, if it were to be known, would be known as a place where the people of the church treasure Jesus. Where the people of the church are enthralled with the gospel. And they live it, and they speak it, and they put it into action. Oh God, make us a church of people who really know Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.